Please turn with me in your Bibles now to Acts chapter 8. We return now to this place in the book of Acts, and we find the early church in what is a rather dark set of circumstances. I have a quote written on a whiteboard where I work from John Flavel, and he says something to the effect that providence is wiser than you. And he's speaking, boys and girls, of God's providence, God's ordaining of all things in our lives. He says, providence is wiser than you, and you can be sure that God has ordered all things to your good far better than you could had you been left to your own options. Well, here in what we read in the beginning of Acts chapter 8, we see the early church facing many assaults from the enemy. They find themselves in dark and difficult circumstances, and yet God's word teaches us this morning how to look for the light. For he, even here in this dark situation, there is much light which causes the church to live to the glory and the praise of Jesus As you remember, two weeks ago, we left off with the stoning of Stephen, and here we see how persecution follows. Well, let's give our careful attention now to the reading of God's holy word. This is Romans chapter 8, the first eight verses. This is the word of God. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who heard them or who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Amen. This is the word of God. In a book of essays, C.S. Lewis wrote about a simple experience that he had with darkness and light. He wrote, I was standing today in a dark tool shed. The sun was shining outside and through the crack at the top of the door there came a sunbeam. From where I stood, that beam of light with specks of dust floating in it was the most striking thing in there. Everything else was almost pitch black. I was seeing the beam, not seeing things by it. Then I moved so that the beam fell on my eyes, and instantly the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed, and above all, I saw no beam. Instead, I saw framed in an irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside, and beyond that, 90-odd million miles away, the sun Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. You see, in that experience, Lewis observed that while he was surrounded by darkness all around, everything changed when he looked for the light. 
Had Lewis limited his perception to his immediate circumstances, he would have only contemplated the darkness. He would have only limited his uh, understanding to shade and to shadows. But looking for the light, Lewis allowed a torrent of light to flood his experience and to reveal that that darkness of his present set of circumstances was quite literally enveloped by miles and miles and miles of glorious light. Sometimes we are placed by God in circumstances in which we too need to actively look for the light. Just look at our text today. Two weeks ago, we considered how Stephen sealed his testimony for Christ with his own blood. As he was being stoned, he lifted up his eyes and he gloriously saw the glory of God and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. All of it was so glorious. But consider the perspective of the church. Because no other believers were there with Stephen, and so none of them had heard of how King Jesus had so graciously and compassionately attended to Stephen in his final moments. Instead, they only heard reports that Stephen had been stoned. And then our text picks up there, telling us that there arose a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. So not only has the church just lost Stephen to a brutal death, but his death actually seemed to ignite a great fire that began to burn furiously against the church. And when the fires of persecution burned, these Christians were scattered from their homes, from their loved ones, and from their communities. And so everything seemed so dark. Here we read of this great persecution and this great dispersion. Here we read of a situation in which there seems to be so little light. And yet here God's word is teaching us to look for the light. This text, in fact, trains our eyes to trace even a single sunbeam out of the darkness of a present shed to find that that present darkness is actually enveloped by an infinite expanse of God's glorious light. Because looking at the beam and looking uh, along the beam are very different experiences. Brothers and sisters, you live in a sin-sick world. And ever since the fall of mankind into sin, darkness has cast its long shadow over your life in this world. Inherently, we all understand that things are not as they ought to be. No, instead, things like disease and sickness steal health from our bodies. And discord and division disrupt our relationships in this world. Temptation deceives and draws us away from that which is truly good. And so everywhere we look, we see the dark shadow of sin tainting what would otherwise be perfect. Well, that is why we need God's Word. This is why we need God's word to teach us today how to look for the light. Even if your life could be compared to Lewis's experience of that darkness in the shed, we need to learn to go to God's word today to trace even a single sunbeam outward to see that even that present darkness is enveloped by an infinite expanse of God's glorious light. So let's begin this morning by considering first a great persecution. A great persecution. When Stephen was stoned, God's word tells us that the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. 
Very likely Saul was also there when Stephen was giving his defense before the Sanhedrin. And our text begins by telling us that Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And that word approval is not just some simple approval. It's actually an enthusiastic approval. It was an approval given without reservation. And so Stephen's execution combined with Saul's approval, were like a match tossed into gasoline. For immediately there arose the flames of a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Now right away we see that that persecution was indiscriminate. It was not aimed at the apostles. It wasn't aimed only at the leaders within the church, but it was actually aimed at anyone and everyone who belonged to the church. But we also should notice that the persecution was local. The persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, which means there was persecution in one locale while there was not persecution in another. And I only note that fact because we need to understand that while we may not be facing persecution today, it doesn't mean that our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world are not actually facing the furious fires of persecution today, for they are. And just because we do not face persecution today does not mean that we won't someday. And so we need to think about the severity of this persecution. We need to consider this deep darkness that had just fallen upon the church. And verse 3 is very descriptive. It says, But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul was ravaging the church, which means Saul was an eager enemy of the church. He pursued every member of the church without mercy, and he was seeking to wreak havoc upon the church. He would, dis- he would stop at nothing to destroy the church. Listen to the way that later the Apostle Paul, Saul himself, puts it in Acts 22. Paul there says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. Consider some of the other descriptions of Paul's persecution. In the next chapter, here in chapter 9, Saul is described as breathing out murderous threats. He is described as doing much evil against the saints and as a man who wreaked havoc upon the church. Later in chapter 26, Paul will remember how he put many saints in prison and how he he eagerly cast his vote to have Christians put to death. He said, I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. In a raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Here God's word sets before us a vivid contrast because in verse 2, God's word tells us about these devout men who buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Here we have these godly men who were grieved over Stephen's sacrifice and so they cared for his brutalized body and they lamented the sad effects of sin. Well, those godly men are set in contrast to Saul because here we see this man Saul still held under the sway of sin and that is why he is seeking to ravage the church this is why he persecuted her even going to foreign cities to find Christians this is why he persecuted the church to prison and even to death and so this is that deep darkness that has descended upon the church so where is the light 
Where is the light shining into the darkness? Well, just as it was for C.S. Lewis in that dark shed, here it is in our text. Here we find the light right in the midst of the darkness. Right in the midst of this darkness, of this great persecution, stands a great display of God's grace. Because here we have a man named Saul. And Saul at this point is the preeminent persecutor of the church. Saul, in fact, we could say is perhaps a primary reason why this deep darkness has fallen upon the church. And yet God in his good providence has gracious plans already in place to save Saul. God already has gracious plans in place to take Saul the persecutor and to transform him into Paul the apostle. Shortly, Jesus is going to stop Saul on the road to Damascus. And he's going to stop Saul there to deliver Saul from his sin and to make him into a glorious testimony to the grace and power of Jesus. Listen to the way that the Apostle Paul will later put it in 1 Timothy 1. There he writes about how he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and he was an insolent opponent of the faith. But then he goes on and he says this. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him to eternal life. The Apostle Paul understood what God did in his life. The Apostle Paul understood so clearly that Jesus set his love upon him. Jesus saved Paul in order to make Paul an eternal monument to the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Well, here is the light shining into this deep darkness Here is this man named Saul who now stands forever as a testimony to God's perfect patience and his power to save. Brothers and sisters, we need to look for the light. We need to learn how to trace even a single sunbeam that breaks forth into the darkness so that we can trace that sunbeam outward to see that this present darkness is actually enveloped by an infinite expanse of God's glorious light. This deep darkness of the great persecution had a single sunbeam shining into it. Though Saul was ravaging the church, very soon the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ would rush in upon him, would rescue him, and make him into that monument to the mercy of Jesus. So how does this apply to your life today? Consider the circumstances of this great persecution from a human perspective. You see, from our vantage point, we can see now and we can appreciate now God's plan for Paul. But in the moment, the believers who were put into prison and the believers who were scattered had no visible hint of God's plan. At this point, this glorious light was actually hidden from their eyes. They couldn't see it. But it was there nonetheless. Their perception of God's plan did not change it. 
Perhaps the same thing is true for you right now. Perhaps the light of God's goodness and grace are hidden from your eyes. Well, see, hear, and believe by God's word that it is still there nonetheless. Even though you cannot see God's good and gracious plan in the present, it does not actually mean that it's not there. It is there, and it is actually making progress gloriously today. There is always light in the darkness. There is always light in the darkness, even if you cannot perceive it. So make no mistake, because Jesus Christ has risen from the grave, because he has been exalted in glory to the right hand of the Father, there is always light, even if you cannot perceive it. Well, so far we've just considered one part of the darkness, that great persecution. So let's go on second to consider more of that darkness. Let's consider second a great dispersion. A great dispersion. That great persecution created a great dispersion. And the text highlights just a few details. Here it teaches us of how most of the church was scattered. Most of the church was scattered. It notes that the apostles were not. And I just highlight that fact because throughout church history, God's people have always debated what to do in times of persecution. Do we stay or do we go? Well, here God's word simply highlights the fact That some stayed while others went. Some stayed while others were scattered. God's will is not uniform for each. Instead, God had plans and purposes for each, whether scattered or whether staying. Well, at this point in the book of Acts, we have learned of how the church in Jerusalem had grown by leaps and bounds. Many thousands of believers now worship together in Jerusalem. But now, because of Saul's persecution... They are going to be scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now, I want you to place yourself in their shoes. It's hard for us to imagine what this would have been like. This persecution was sudden and severe. These believers had to, had to scatter quickly. This was not a simple relocation. Instead, these believers suddenly became refugees. They had to leave behind their jobs and their homes They had to leave most of their possessions and all of their plans. Fleeing for their lives, the early church was uprooted. Uprooted from the communities in which they had grown up. Uprooted, many of them, from their families. And these were simply ordinary people. They were ordinary people like you and me, and they grew up with dreams and plans for the future. They were ordinary people who suddenly found that the expectations of earlier life were no longer a part of the picture. So imagine what it would be like to have this dark shadow suddenly darken your days. Suddenly you fear for your own life. And perhaps what is worse, you actually fear for the lives of your loved ones. And the life that you have worked so hard to create, you must now abandon in a moment. And then perhaps what is worse, you don't even know what awaits you yet in Judea and Samaria. And so again I ask, where is the light? Is there a beam of light shining into this deep darkness? Well, if your Bible is still open, look there at verse 4. Because it says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And there you have it. There is the light. 
Here we see God's people suddenly expelled from their homes and from their communities and from their families, and yet somehow they are going with the good news of Jesus Christ flowing from their lips. Here the praises of King Jesus seem to effortlessly rise from the lips of those who have just lost everything. And this word translated here as preaching simply is a Greek word from which we get our English word for evangelize. There's actually a difference here in two words that are used for preaching. The more formal word for preaching is actually used in relationship to Philip in our text. This is a more informal word for preaching. It could perhaps be better translated as simply spread the good news or simply gospel others. Because of this distinction, one historian noted that the chief agents in the expansion of Christianity appear not to have been those who made it their profession. But instead, it was men and women who carried on their livelihood in some purely secular manner and spoke of their faith to those that they met in a natural fashion. Brothers and sisters, we need to remember that the Great Commission is something that God has given to all of us as the church. That we are all to go with the gospel. In Matthew 28, when the Great Commission is given by Jesus, he says, Go therefore, making disciples. And really, it could be translated as, As you go, make disciples. Or wherever you go, make disciples. Make disciples is what we are to be about wherever we go. And so that is what we see here in the text. Even as in God's providence, a great persecution has arisen against the church, and even as in God's providence, this persecution now leads to the dispersion of God's people, in all of this, we see this glorious beam of light shining into the darkness. For here we see this great display of God's purposeful providence. Back in Acts chapter 1, Jesus stood before the apostles before he ascended into heaven. And he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Well, that promise and that call given to the apostles was not simply given to the apostles. It was given to the apostles for all of the church. Because here we see in its fulfillment, the apostles are still in Jerusalem while all of these other believers have now been scattered into Judea and into Samaria. In God's providence, persecution is repurposed by God to send God's people filled with the Holy Spirit out into this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ flowing from their lips. Here in our text, it's as if the Apostle Paul is trying to put out a campfire. Boys and girls, you've seen a campfire. It has stones put around it to contain the fire within the stones. Well, here the Apostle Paul rushes upon the campfire that is the church in Jerusalem. But instead of extinguishing the fire, he actually kicks embers out into the forest. And pretty soon the whole forest is going to be ablaze. In God's providence, he changed the location of these believers. But he did not change the commission that he had placed upon their lives. No, God's providence repurposes their persecution to serve greater good. To actually send the light of Jesus Christ out into this dark world. Now once again, I think we need to pause. 
We need to pause to consider, that the, uh, to consider the way that things may have seemed to these believers. What kind of wrong conclusions could they have come to if they would have simply read Providence? Perhaps they could have concluded something like God was against them. Perhaps they could have concluded that they had somehow lost God's blessing. Again, it's easy for us to see God's greater purposes in it all now from our vantage point. It is easy for us now to see God's light shining into these dark circumstances, but it would not have been so easy for these early believers. No, they were forced to flee in a moment. And so we need to see that these believers were simply walking by faith and not by sight. It was not as if God had given them some sort of blueprint for, their, for His plan. No, instead, day by day, these believers are returning to what matters most. They were returning to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, only the saving work of Jesus is powerful enough to cause refugees to go out into this world concerned for the souls of others. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful enough to cause refugees to go out into this world with the gospel upon their lips. Even though the early church did not have enough data to see exactly how God was orchestrating all things for a greater good, it was enough for them to trust in Jesus Christ their Savior and so go glorifying God with the gospel. So here again we see that there is great light surrounding the immediate darkness. Well, there's one more consideration for us this morning. One more moment of darkness. So let's consider finally a great discomfort. A great discomfort. In the final verses of our text, the Holy Spirit highlights one particular example of those who were scattered abroad. The text tells us that many were scattered from Jerusalem throughout Judea and Samaria, but God's word here zooms in on Philip for our consideration. And the text simply says that Philip went down to the city of Samaria. But in order for us to appreciate the significance of what we've just read, we need to slow down here. There's something significant with the fact that Philip is in Samaria. You see, there was, as we might say, a history between the Jews and the Samaritans that had been festering for about a thousand years. The Jews and the Samaritans hated one another. The trouble began in the 10th century BC when 10 tribes broke away and made Samaria their capital, leaving only two tribes of Israel loyal to Jerusalem. Then when the Assyrians captured Samaria in 722 BC, thousands of its inhabitants were deported and the country was repopulated with Gentiles or foreigners. And so the Samaritans immediately became this mixed race. When the Jews returned from Babylonian captivity two centuries later, they refused the help of the Samaritans in rebuilding the temple. And by the fourth century, the relationships were at an all-time low. By this point, the Samaritans have rejected most of Scripture. They only cling to the Pentateuch. And what is worse, they had erected a rival temple to the temple in Jerusalem. They had erected a temple now on Mount Gerizim. And later, while Israel was resisting Syrian oppression, while Israel was suffering torture and suffering instead of surrender, the Samaritans compromised. 
And they dedicated that temple in Gerizim to Zeus. So the Samaritans were considered compromisers. They were those who had betrayed the people of God. They were considered to be heretics. In John chapter 4, we read of how Jesus spent time with a Samaritan woman. And that text to a Jew is absolutely shocking. And John there actually writes, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That is the background of our text. That brings us back to our text today. You see, here the Holy Spirit highlights how Philip's dispersion did not cause him to go and find a quiet place of comfort. Instead, in God's providence, the Lord drove Philip into this place of great discomfort. This is the last place that Philip would have designed or desired to go. The Jews and the Samaritans have a deep divide between them, and yet here in God's wisdom, God has so ordered this dispersion to send the good news of Jesus Christ to go to heal a deep divide. The obstacles to overcome were formidable. Social, cultural, and racial divisions seem to make any evangelism improbable, if not impossible. It would be hard for us to imagine a more difficult scenario for the gospel. Everything again seems so dark. Not only has Philip been driven from his home, but now he's been driven into a place that is far more uncomfortable than the place that he has just left. So where is the light? Well, just consider what King Jesus has been doing in all of this. Consider what Christ has planned for the Samaritans and for God's people who were driven into Samaria. First of all, notice that Philip went down to the city of Samaria preaching to them the Christ. You see, even though Philip was forced to flee, he didn't view himself as a refugee. Instead, Philip viewed himself as a missionary. Philip was far more concerned about souls in Samaria dying without Christ than he was with redressing cultural, social, or ethnic grievances. Perhaps when when Philip was driven from his home, and while he made his journey down to Samaria, perhaps he was meditating upon Jesus and that Samaritan woman the whole way. Perhaps he was reordering his own heart with Christ's compassion for the Samaritans so that he would bring the good news of Jesus Christ to a, cult, or to a people that his culture called his enemies. Second, notice that Philip went with word and deed. He went preaching to them the Christ, but he also went doing good wherever he went by God's blessing and in the power of the Holy Spirit, Philip healed men and he cast out evil spirits. He validated his love for these people in both word and deed. He cared for them in both body and soul. But then third, notice that Philip went with the blessing of God. Philip went with the blessing of God in the fact that Philip has now set himself aside. Philip is powerfully used by God for the advancement of Christ's kingdom. And think of how easily it would have been for Philip to get down and discouraged. Think of how easily it would have been for anyone being driven out of Jerusalem to be depressed. 
But here instead, by the grace and power of God, Philip sees that God has much more in store for him than simply the way things seem. Just consider the way that the text itself sets up that wonderful contrast. Beginning in verse 1, the text says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church. All seems so very dark. But then the text ends saying, And so there was much joy in that city. Even though things began so very dark, they end with God's people rejoicing in much light. The church in Jerusalem was ravaged by Saul, but then the city of Samaria was blessed with much joy. The trials and challenges of one city brought eternal blessing to another. We need to understand that throughout the darkness of this situation, Jesus had joy as the end designed in it all. This eternal gospel joy was in Christ's mind when he commissioned the apostles back in chapter 1. No one at that point would have imagined that God would ordain persecution and suffering of his people to be the catalyst to drive them out of the comforts of home, out into Samaria, so that the people of Samaria would receive Jesus Christ and that they could all then share in that eternal joy. And so through this great discomfort, we see a great display of God's good design for the joy of all his people. And what if that is precisely what Christ has designed through all of the various circumstances of your life today? Take out the what if. Because it is what Christ has designed for all of the circumstances of your life today. Maybe like Philip early on, you cannot see how what Christ has for you in this season of life. You can't see light. You can't see goodness. You can't see joy. You can't, you can't see that sunbeam falling into that, that dark shed. Remember, neither could Philip, neither could these believers in the moment But it didn't matter what they could perceive. Because despite what they could perceive, even this dark shadow was surrounded by an infinite expanse of God's glorious light. Brothers and sisters, we need to learn to look for the light. In each and every set of circumstances, we need to learn to look for the light by faith by looking into God's word. Because here we can see in just this short text that God always has greater designs for every last detail of our circumstances. Here Jesus teaches us to trust in him despite what we can see. Despite the fact that things might be dark and dim, we can trust in his promise knowing that he has ordered all things for our good. Here in our text, we see God's people living through dark and dismal circumstances. But looking for the light and learning to live in light of the big picture, that darkness is actually enveloped by an infinite expanse of God's glorious light. 
But that light can only be perceived and believed by faith, looking to God's word. There was once a three-year-old boy who was once crying in a dark room of a home that he was visiting with his family. Daddy, the boy cried out, talk to me. I'm frightened. It is so dark. His father answered him, what good will that do? You can't see me. It doesn't matter, replied the boy. Because when you talk, it gets light. Brothers and sisters, God is speaking to you by his word today. And if you will look to God's word by faith when he speaks to you, it gets light. Let us pray together. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your holy word. Lord God, we pray that you would cause us as your people to walk by faith and not by sight. Lord, we know that even in our congregation that there are many different kinds of circumstances surrounding us as families and as individuals. Some are experiencing great blessing. Others are in seasons of trial and challenge. And Lord God, we ask that as your people, we might truly embrace the life of an exile as a sojourner or as a pilgrim, that we would understand that here we have, here we have no earthly home, but you have given to us instead something that is far better that you have promised to us and accomplished for us eternal life. And even as you have ordained for us to live our lives as pilgrims in this world, that in each and every set of circumstances, no matter how dark and no matter how hard it is to perceive light, that we can go to your word, And by faith we can see that whatever that present darkness might be, it is actually enveloped by that infinite expanse of your glorious light. Lord, even as we heard in the book of Romans, that the glory that will be revealed to us one day cannot even be compared to the darknesses that we experience in this life. Lord God, we pray that you would give us the eyes of faith to look into your word and to believe against all hope. Lord, we thank you for the precious gift of your word and the promises made therein. We pray that you might strengthen our faith to cling to these promises and so to live for your glory in this world. We pray all this now in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. Amen.